Let me say what a delight it is for me to be here as your interim pastor for this season so that Pastor Deborah might have sabbatical leave. I know you may be a little curious about me, so let me just share some short details, and then the longer we are friends, the more might come out, ask me anything you want. I am married. My husband's name is Sparks. He's a retired CPA. We are the parents of two children. Our youngest is our son, Matthew, and he's currently finishing a PhD at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Our older is our daughter, Laurel, who is an assistant district attorney in Fort Bend County, who is married to our son-in-law that we love like a son, Mike, and they, the best thing they've ever done, are the parents of our beautiful grandchildren, Madeline Grace and Clayton Hayes, who are my Olivia and Ella. And every grandmother is entitled to think hers are best, and I do. So. I'm glad to be here. A little bit of information for you about interim ministry. Um, I'm a retired United Methodist pastor, and I have come to understand that my ministry in this season of my life is strengthening clergy who are still actively serving the church. So I've been trained as an interim, and I do some coaching of young clergy. I, however, am retired. I'm not remotely interested in having Deborah's job full-time. So I will gladly hand this all back to her when she comes back. Um, it's understood to be a full-time, uh, part-time gig, although we all know there really is no part-time ministry. What that means is that I will be with you on Sundays and two days during the week, unless something like a funeral or another need arises. And should you need to reach me, you are free to be in touch with me at any time, and the church office will know how to get in touch with me if you need me. As I think about how the church is called to respond to the wonder of resurrection, I'm reminded of something Jesus said to his disciples in John's gospel in the 14th chapter. He promised them that when he was gone from them, they would do greater things than he had done. And so in the first few weeks among you, I'm going to be preaching on some stories I think speak to us about those greater things. Today I'm reading from the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, a passage that calls us to see more deeply, to see with greater clarity. Let us pray. Holy God, let your word work among us. Let it touch our hearts. Let it fill us that we might receive it, and hearing and receiving that we might live it in the world so that it might strengthen us to be ever more faithful disciples 
of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear these words. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and he immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A little over a year ago, I had cataract surgery. Now, cataract surgery is one of those things like gray hair that comes to us as we get older. And friends, I'm old. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am not a natural blonde. Just, 
just think of this as camouflage. So along with my camouflage and being old came cataract surgery. Now, following that surgery, I went from being someone who heard the alarm ring in the morning and grabbed for a pair of glasses so I could stumble into the bathroom where I put contact lenses in my eyes and then I could see again. I went from that to being someone who can see with absolutely no need for glasses or lenses of any kind. Friends, that is an amazing thing. In the story we just read, Saul went from laying face down in the dirt to being someone who could see the world in a completely new and different way because he met Jesus on the road. Now that's a good thing. And it's an amazing thing. But most of all, it is a God thing. Saul was young. He was ambitious. He was zealous. He was committed. But most of all, Saul was dangerous because he was convinced he was right. He was convinced he knew the will of God. He was convinced that his will was God's will. And he was intent on living out his will. Saul had been interested in the church from its very beginning, but not because he wanted the church to grow stronger. He was interested in the church because he wanted to destroy it. And he had permission from the religious leaders in Jerusalem to drag Christians out of their homes, bind them in chains, and carry them to Jerusalem. It was for Saul a holy crusade, and it never entered his mind that what he was doing was not the will of God. On the road to Damascus, Saul was struck by a blinding light that hit him full in the face, and the power of that light was so great, he ended up face down in the dirt. And he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he barked back, who is this? Well, it's Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Now, get up and go into town, and there you will learn what you are to do. Saul struggled to his feet and discovered that he couldn't see anything. This self-confident persecutor of Christians was rendered helpless by the light, utterly dependent on others to get him where he needed to go. Now, when God called Saul, God was clear that this guy was zealous, 
that he was ambitious and that he was persecuting Christians. But God also knew when he called Saul that he had called a personality who would work overtime to get his mission accomplished. And God also knew that he would have to use a lot of drama to get Saul's attention, which is, of course, why Saul ended up face down in the dust. In Damascus, there was a faithful disciple by the name of Ananias, a man steeped in prayer, a man who had a strong relationship with God. Their relationship was conversational to the point that when God called Ananias, Ananias did not have to say, who is this? He knew the voice. But even though Ananias was deeply faithful and deeply steeped in prayer, what God had to say to him was frightening. Ananias, I want you to go and lay hands on Saul. Go to a house on Straight Street. There you're going to find Saul in prayer. I want you to lay your hands on him and heal him of his blindness. Oh, no, Lord. No, no, you don't want Saul. Saul is an evil man. And the Lord said, yeah, yeah, I know Ananias, but he's the one I've chosen to make my name known to the Gentiles. So you go on in and lay hands on him. And when Ananias got there, he did just that. He laid his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to pray for you, to heal your blindness, that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Saul stood up, scales fell from his eyes. He could see again, see really in a way he had never seen before. He was baptized. And in that moment, his life was completely transformed. He went from being Saul, who persecuted the church, to Paul, who founded churches among the Gentiles. It was a new name for a new life and mission. Saul was never the same again. Paul, who had been killing Christians, now saw them as sisters and brothers in the faith. We have come to call this experience Paul's conversion story. The story of how God was at work in Saul's life to change him and transform him completely through the love and grace of Jesus Christ. You know, even people who aren't deep scholars of Scripture know about Paul's Damascus Road experience. 
It really has become the quintessential conversion story. And friends, that is both good and bad. It's good in the sense that it is profound testimony to what Jesus Christ does in our lives through his grace and forgiveness. But it's bad when we begin to view any conversion experience that doesn't match Paul's in intensity and drama as somehow inferior. You know, the story of Paul's conversion is simply one in a series of conversion stories in the book of Acts. There is the story of a eunuch from Ethiopia who discovered God in the pages of Scripture and came to understand that he himself was a beloved child of God. The Ethiopian eunuch was converted and baptized by Philip. There's the story of a Roman centurion who heard Peter preach, and he and his entire household were converted and baptized. And each of these experiences is every bit as significant as Paul's was. Within Paul's own story, there is also the story of the conversion of Ananias. Now, friends, Ananias and Jesus were on a first-name basis. Ananias was a man steeped in faith and prayer. But through his experience with Saul, he came to know Jesus more deeply. While he didn't end up face down on the road, like Saul did, what Ananias heard Jesus calling him to do was every bit as frightening as Paul's encounter with Jesus. I mean, you heard it in his protests. No, Lord, you don't need Saul. Saul's an evil man. Saul's a reprobate. Saul will destroy the church. You don't need him. And the response came back, I do need him. I need the intensity of his personality. I need his deep commitment. And God needed Ananias to have enough trust to know there just might be something in Saul. There just might be something that could be of use to God. We have evidence of Ananias' conversion and the language he used when he laid hands on Saul. He called him Brother Saul. He didn't call him Saul or Enemy Saul or Reprobate Saul or Evil Saul. He called him Brother Saul because Ananias was now able to see Saul in a new and different way. Friends, 
there are many kinds of conversion experiences. And many times throughout our lives, when we are converted to deeper faith in Jesus Christ, the point is not so much how and when we meet Jesus. The point is what happens in our lives, how we are transformed when we meet Jesus. Paul was doggedly determined to walk a road of death and destruction and ended up flat on his face. But when Jesus worked in his life, he was utterly transformed from persecutor to founder of the early church. Ananias, who prayed and knew God, came to know Jesus even more deeply because he was able to see in Saul a brother in the faith. Conversion has everything to do with how we see the world and Jesus Christ at work within it. When we bump into Jesus, or more accurately and truthfully, when Jesus bumps into us, because, folks, Jesus is always the initiator in this relationship. When Jesus bumps into us, our lives are changed. We come to know in a way we have never known before that we are loved by God, that our lives matter that God has great work for us today. And we come to see the world in a completely new and different way. There are many kinds of conversions. And many times throughout our life, when we are converted, to a deeper faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you are longing for a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. I know I do at times because conversion is an amazing thing. Well, let me simply say that as people of faith who trust Jesus Christ, the appropriate question for us to ask is not, hey God, why can't you shine a light in my face just as bright and powerful as the one you shined in Saul's face? I mean, who wouldn't want that kind of experience? We could get faith with complete clarity, faith with no more doubt, faith with no more questions. Here's the word. It's not likely to happen. So the appropriate questions for us to be asking are, 
Where is Jesus Christ at work in my life? Where is Jesus Christ at work in the world? And how can I join him in that world? Because friends, when we are transformed, we see that world in a completely different way and we see everyone else in it in a different way. Those people that used to make us afraid, you know who those people are. They're the ones that cause us to look at our feet in elevators or the ones that cause us to walk a little more quickly when we pass them on the sidewalk. Those people, those, you know, those people, those people become for us brothers and sisters in Christ. And the world suddenly becomes for us a place in desperate need of hope and healing and compassion and good news that only we can share. So, when Jesus bumps into us, he calls us to join him in that important work. When Jesus bumps into us, he calls us to see the world as he sees it, and to bless the world as only he at work in and through us can bless it. That's significant experience, friends. And so if we want that kind of more profound religious experience, I know I do, I trust you do too, if we want that, the prayer we are called to pray is not, Hey, God, would you make me like Paul or even like Ananias or the Ethiopian eunuch or my neighbor next door? The prayer we are called to pray is, Holy One, let us see Jesus when he is headed our way. Let me be transformed. Let me see the world as Jesus sees it, and let me say yes when he calls me to follow. Friends, if the church dared, if the church ever dared to pray that prayer, the world would be a radically different place because it would be filled with the great things that Jesus promised we would do. In the name of the God who calls us to more than we ever thought possible, amen.